Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. Today in this podcast, we speak to Kevin Bender, who is an Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of California in San Francisco. The reason we wanted to talk to Kevin is that he's been doing a lot of work in loss of function side on SCN2A. We've talked in a number of episodes about gain of function, uh, but loss of function is uh, equally common, if not even more common than gain of function. So we thought it's really important to get a better understanding of some of the research going on in this area. Thank you, uh, Kevin, for joining us today on the podcast. We appreciate your time today, but also we appreciate all the work you're doing in SCN2A. I know there's lots of families around the world who are grappling with what it means, whether they've got a gain of function or loss of function, and just hearing that people are taking the time out to work on this specific gene uh, provides some hope and interest as well as as to what what you're learning uh, through your work. Oh, well, thank you, Tris. Thank you, David, for having me this morning. Um, I know it's it's relatively early for me on the West Coast of California, but it's extremely early for you. So I appreciate you getting up extremely early. I'm happy to talk about what our lab's been up to in the SCN2A realm. What are the differences that you found between gain and loss of function mutations in SCN2A? This work started probably three years ago with some interactions with Stefan Sanders, who came to UCSF from Yale. And he is a geneticist by training and also a pediatrician by training who's been studying the genetics of early neurodevelopmental disorders. And one thing they noted was that SCN2A was one of the most commonly associated genes with autism spectrum disorder. And it seemed like in those cases, it was a loss of function case where there was less protein available to individual neurons or the the channel itself didn't function as well as it should. And so that actually contrasted with what we've known for probably 10 or 20 years on the opposite side, which is the gain of function side where the channel functions more than it should, and it's a little more excitable than normal. And that gives rise to really early infantile epilepsy. So our lab started by just asking the question, well, do these clinical manifestations where we think that there's gain and loss of function at the level of the channel, does that actually play out at the level of an individual channel? So we started this collaboration by studying individual channels. And the way you do that in a dish is you generate individual channels and you have them express in a type of cell that actually doesn't have any sodium channels itself because SCN2A encodes this sodium channel, this brain sodium channel, NAV1.2. And so you get them to express in a, a little cell that doesn't have its own sodium channel. So you can study the function of this newly expressed channel all on its own. When we started doing this, we were expressing these uh, sodium channels in what are called HEK cells. They actually come from uh, human kidney cells, and kidney just doesn't express sodium channels itself. In those cases, you can go and then and then do electrophysiological experiments where you basically test the cell by running it through different voltages that engage these sodium channels and asking how well these sodium channels respond to those voltages. And what we did is we, we expressed normal sodium channels, normal one, NAV 1.2 channels. And we also expressed some that are known to be associated with various forms of early infantile epilepsy, those associated with epileptic encephalopathies, and those associated with benign infantile seizures. And those are the ones that we actually 
don't worry about as much in the clinic because those are ones that arise relatively early in life, but then actually spontaneously regress as a child gets a little bit older. What we found on that side was that perfectly consistent with the literature is that epileptic encephalopathy-associated mutations resulted in rather dramatic changes in what's called the voltage dependence of these channels or the speed at which the channel opened or closed. And what that meant was that the channels opened were easier to open at lower voltages. And so that's, that's indicative of something called hyperexcitability, where once you translate that into neuro, a neuron, the neuron would fire an action potential, fire something in a sodium-dependent way, sodium-channel-dependent way, much more quickly and much more readily than it normally would. And that is very consistent with the manifestation of epilepsy at a network level. And so that was the case for epileptic encephalopathy. Benign infantile seizure was a less severe form of that. There were more, the, the channels were more excitable, but certainly not as excitable as epileptic encephalopathy. And we did both of those as a control, just to make sure that we were doing things the right way and that we saw things that were consistent with what, uh, what other people saw in the literature. The work on the opposite side, those associated with loss of function, we really actually didn't know what to expect. We had some cases where we knew that the channel shouldn't be made at all because what happened was a variant introduced what's called a stop codon. And so the protein should be made just a little bit, and then it reaches a stop prematurely. And it what happens is the protein is stopped from being made. And actually, the little bit that's already been made just goes off and is, is eaten up by some regulatory machinery inside the cell. And so those ended up being cases where basically we didn't see any functional sodium channels at all. That made a lot of sense. But then we had another case where we saw missense mutations associated with loss of function. And these missense mutations are much more commonly associated with gain of function. And so we didn't actually know what would happen. Is it that there are some cases where there are missense mutations and actually we see something like extra or excess sodium, and that is somehow associated with autism spectrum disorder or loss of function? Or was it that these missense mutations were somehow damaging or decreasing sodium influx through the channel. And so we went and expressed all of the missense mutations that were known from some studies that were done from the Autism Sequencing Consortium and the Simon Simplex Consortium back in 2012 or so. And what we found with, I think there were seven or so variants at that time, that each of those either completely blocked the channel from conducting sodium or they decrease the amount of sodium that was allowed through for any given voltage or, or any given time of uh, opening. And so those are going to, be, going to be more consistent with loss of function. But one thing I want to stress is that on both sides of the coin here, gain of function and loss, loss of function, it's not really a coin. It's not really a binary thing where either you have a variant or a, or a mutation that gives rise to full loss of function or full gain of function. There's actually this massive spectrum where there are different degrees of effect. And we see that very easily on the gain-of-function side, where you have varying forms of epilepsy from, from relatively mild, even though any form of epilepsy shouldn't be considered mild, to something where you have an extremely severe form that lasts throughout life. On the loss-of-function side, it seems like we have a similar thing occurring, where sometimes we have a little bit of a dampening of sodium flux, but in other cases, we have a complete block of sodium flux. And in those cases, the child is basically left with a situation where they have one normal copy of the gene from either the mother or the father, 
and then another copy which is basically not producing enough of the channel. And so this is a case that's defined as um, something called a haploinsufficiency, where you have one of two normal copies, and the second copy can't, having one copy doesn't allow you to compensate for the loss of the other. So that's how you found the cells behaved when you were testing them in the dish, if you like. What happens when you then took that learning into uh, an animal model, like a mouse model? We had this major question now. We, we have these two sides of the coin, gain of function and loss of function at the level of the channel. Now the big question was, well, if we see loss of function, how does that actually relate to something like autism spectrum disorder or developmental delay when you translate that loss of half of a certain population of sodium channels into something as complex as a human brain. It would be lovely to be able to study this inside human brains and actually interrogate individuals, circuits and cells and systems. And some people are starting to do this with induced pluripotent stem cell lines where you can actually transform skin cells or any type of cell into brain cells in a dish. And you can actually make a lot of discoveries that way. Unfortunately, for SCN2A, there, there turn out to be some rather interesting developmental quirks that we've identified in mouse that would suggest that if you wanted to study this in a human equivalent, you would actually have to let those cells grow up for about a year or two. And so we've actually shied away from that approach and instead have used mouse models. And mice are extremely useful because you can purpose breed them for this approach and you can generate mice that actually have the exact same genetic makeup as what is found in a child neurodevelopmental issue. So, for example, you can find mice that are haploinsufficient for SCN2A, otherwise known as SCN2A heterozygotes, where they have one functional copy and one lost copy. Now, it turns out that these mice were actually made way back in 2000, really to study what happens in a basic biological sense, what happens when you lose NAV 1.2 channels. And so the original study reported that, okay, if we get rid of half the channels, the mice look largely normal. And then the rest of the study started to focus on what happens if you get rid of all of the channels. And actually what happens there is that the, the mice die right around birth because SCN2A is, is actually important for driving your diaphragm. And so the mice just uh, weren't able to breathe. Obviously, this is an extremely important sodium channel. But at that level, back in 2000, nobody knew it was associated with autism. So the heterozygotes and the, the, the SCN2A haploinsufficient case, it was basically thought of as, well, it looks largely normal, so we're just not going to study it. And so these mice were basically put on the back burner until the field progressed and, and autism genetics moved forward. And in 2012, we discovered that this was one of the most important genes in autism. And so at that stage, it became a realization of, well, those mice actually are extremely important. I wonder who still has them. Has anyone actually held on to these, to these mice for the last 12 or 15 years? And so we started asking around. We contacted the, the original authors of that paper, and it turned out that they got rid of the mice back in 2007 because they just hadn't had a need for it. Um, suggested a few other people, contacted those people. They didn't have it. It ended up being that I had to scour the internet and find a lab through actual research of who was doing active research in this realm. And it turned out that there was one colleague of mine down in Louisiana State Health Sciences that happened to have these mice. And he finally sent them over to us. I think he sent like three mice. A couple of them died in transport. Um, so we ended up starting a colony for, I think, one or two males. 
and resurrecting SCN2A in our lab. And now, thankfully, we've been able to share this with other, with other groups and get these shared with the community. So, so we're actively sharing these with the permission of uh, Mauricio Montal, who originally developed them. We finally got our hands on this mouse model. We had to ask the question of, well, what happens when you have loss of function? What does it look like in a mouse? And we had this original prediction, and it's basically the flip of gain of function. We know with gain of function, we have hyperexcitability. With loss of function, we would expect hypoexcitability or less, uh, fewer action potentials generated per neuron. And what we found was that, yes, indeed, that was the case. But a bit to our surprise, we found that that was present only in really, really early life in a mouse. It actually was present really within the first postnatal week in a mouse. And that corresponds to, since mice grow up a lot faster than humans, it actually corresponds to about the first year in a human. Now, in some respects, that actually made a lot of sense to us because if you think about benign infantile seizure, one of the prevailing hypotheses in the field is that the reason benign infantile seizure shows up early in life and then disappears is because some early developmental switches that go on within certain neurons in your brain. So early in life, it's known that the outermost portion of your brain, the neocortex, inside there, there are, there are excitatory cells that express NAV 1.2. And very early in life, it's known, actually from Steve Fortru's lab, that these cells only express NAV 1.2 and no other form of sodium channels. But then about a year in life in a human and about a week in life in a mouse, there's another sodium channel, a CN8A, which is associated with other forms of epilepsy and wishes for Elliot is, is a, a parent group associated with that. SCN8A is upregulated. And SCN8A has properties that encode a sodium channel called NAV1.6, and that has properties that are slightly different than NAV1.2. And it's thought that the upregulation basically allows the cell to switch from, from having NAV1.2-dependent action potentials to NAV1.6-dependent action potentials. And that helps you get rid of this benign infantile seizure form where there's basically very small changes in voltage dependence of 1.2 that are completely subsumed by the normal voltage dependencies of NAV 1.6. Flipping back to the loss of function side, what we saw was we had early hypoexcitability in mouse models where they lacked one copy of NAV 1.2. But then that went away. And so thinking about it from the opposite side, we thought, well, maybe that's because NAV 1.6 is upregulated. And that looks like it's the case. So really within, within a mouse, we have hypoexcitability, hypoexcitability early in life that disappears once the other sodium channels are upregulated. And at that point, we're wondering, well, okay, if we have this early developmental loss, but then it's restored pretty quickly, how can that actually lead to a lifelong issue of developmental delay and autism spectrum disorder? And so that led us to look a little bit more carefully at the excitability of the neurons. And one thing that we noticed was that, yes, action potential initiation was intact and propagation down neuronal axons was relatively intact as far as we could tell. What we found later in life is that 
NAB 1.2 channels lost their role in the axon, but actually found a new role in another part of the cell called the dendrite. And so before I explain that, I just want to explain a little bit of how neurons are organized. They typically have a cell body, which is sitting right in the center, and that's called the soma. And on the output side, there's an axon, which integrates a lot of information from the soma, but also integrates information from another part of the cell called the dendrite. And the dendrite looks like a big old tree standing on top of a tree trunk. And you can imagine all the leaves are individual inputs into that cell. And those leaves actually in a, in a neuron are things called spines because they look like little pokey things. These spines are sources of excitatory input onto these cells. And each of these spines can be strengthened or weakened depending on whether or not you want some sort of learning process to go on uh, within an individual pathway that's connecting to certain spines or other spines. And it's through this process of strengthening and weakening these synapses that we think learning occurs. This is one of the dominant theories in neuroscience for how learning manifests at an individual cell level. One of the ways in which learning occurs at these individual spines is by knowing when the neuron integrated all the information and fired an action potential. If an individual spine can somehow compare and contrast information based on its input and the output, it might either strengthen itself or it might weaken itself, uh, sometimes depending on the timing of those things and often depending on whether or not an input gave rise to an output. And so one way to think about that is cells that fire together, wire together, they tend to strengthen those connections and that's, that can give rise to a long-lasting memory. Okay, how does this relate to SCN2A? Well, it turns out that the way a spine can pay attention to its output is through something called backpropagation of action potentials. And that's a case where an action potential initiates in the axon and then propagates back into the dendrite. And if it gets to a spine, that spine now has some sort of mark or memory that an action potential just occurred. And it can compare in a fancy biophysical way or biochemical process, whether or not it just had an input that helped give rise to that, act, to that output. And so at the level of an individual spine, that's one of the ways in which you can have uh, plasticity and you, you can give rise to learning or memory in individual cells. So what we found in SCN2A is that that backpropagation was severely impaired. And it was because the dendrites seemed to have lost many of the sodium channels that helped support backpropagation. And so what we thought here was that this actually makes a lot of sense. The children have a lot of issues with learning, especially with long-lasting learning. So sometimes you can, you can work with these children and actually get them to, to learn a new process within one day. And then the next day, they'll have forgotten and you have to start again. And it's an unfortunate situation, but it actually is consistent with what we're finding in individual cells. And so here, what we saw was that backpropagation was impaired. And then if we tested whether or not we could have any case where we could have backpropagation-dependent reinforcement or plasticity of these synapses, we found that that process was impaired as well. And then we found other metrics, such as you can look at the morphology of these spines, you can look at other physiological properties of these spines, and they all looked, in many cases, just like very immature spines that had never had a chance to develop. And so our theory at this point is that autism spectrum disorder, at least with associated with SCN2A, may be associated with this failure to develop normal functioning synapses in these dendrites. 
So sometimes we think about autism as a manifestation of hyper-excitability. You know, kids can't switch off, they can't go to sleep at night, they're a bit, you know, difficulty with distraction. So how does loss of function translate to those sort of behaviours? You definitely see that with, with the kids that are on the loss of function side. Sometimes they have trouble with distractions. They have trouble attending to, they're easily distracted. They're easily um, startled. And it's a situation that's, that actually doesn't make sense when you think about hypo excitability, and especially this case with learning in the dendrites. And so one thing that we've been thinking about is, well, one, can we model that in a mouse and whether or not the mice have certain levels of hyper excitability or an inability to cancel out or just ignore distractions. And so that's something we're actually actively testing in the lab right now. We don't have an answer, unfortunately, yet. But at the level of the child, one possibility there, again, becomes a, it, it becomes an issue with learning. So often, what, what you and I are capable of doing is eventually learning to adapt to distractors and learning to focus. And if you've lost the ability to learn, and if you've lost the ability to actively forget or actively ignore certain processes, then everything in the world is novel. And that becomes an issue because you can't easily remove those distractors and it becomes an issue of, of attending. It, it becomes an issue where any sort of contact or any excess visual stimuli becomes becomes overwhelming. And so often you'll find that the parents can deal with this by introducing certain visual stimuli that are, that are pleasing to the child or um, some, uh, some headphones to remove all those extra distractors. And we see that all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. In, in my role as an adult sleep physician, when I work with people with autism spectrum disorder, often it's a failure of self-soothing. They haven't learned mm-hmm. To self-soothe. So I really like that learning hypothesis that it's not a hyper-excitability so much at a cellular level. It may actually be that there's not that learning of the social skill of self-soothing. Yeah, that's, that is entirely a possibility. Now, one of our big questions is um, with SCN2A, it's, it's an outrageously important gene on its own. And understanding how SCN2A uh, gives rise to these things not only helps us understand how we can hopefully better treat these children with SCN2A disorders, but also possibly help us understand autism as a whole. And so this is something that we're starting to explore as well is do these issues that we see with backpropagation or potentially with hyper excitability at, at at an animal's level, are these really failures to learn within individual cells or failure to extinguish non-relevance sensory inputs? And how common is that across other genes associated with autism spectrum disorder? What else can SCN2A tell us is, is a big question in the lab. Yeah. And sometimes you get insights into these things by correcting those defects. And you presented a paper at Neuroscience earlier this year where you'd gone on to do that. What did you find? This is work that we're that we're actively pursuing with Nadava Hitu's lab at UCSF and also with Stefan Sanders's lab, at where we've taken advantage. and And I, sh- I should stress that this wasn't a paper; this was a, a a poster. So this is still work in progress, but we're pretty excited by this work. We're we're taking advantage of a technique that Nadav's helped push forward called CRISPR activation to help rescue cases of haploinsufficiency. This could be considered a form of gene editing without any editing. We use a lot of the same techniques that that those who are working towards gene editing use, 
but it's actually a technique that doesn't do any editing itself. So a couple of things I need to explain in the process. Well, first, what we our, our major goal was to get SCN2A levels back to their normal normal full level in a case of haploinsufficiency, where you only have one of the two genes working and you have a protein truncation in the other gene and that's leading to a, a complete loss of that set of proteins. So we're at 50% and we have to get back up to 100%. One way in which you could do that, if you're thinking about gene editing, would be, well, you could just introduce extra copies of SCN2A. Unfortunately, the current state of the art using viral techniques just wouldn't work for SCN2A. SCN2A genes are simply too large to fit inside the viral packages that we could use for gene therapy currently. And so that's really not an approach. And so we've had to think about some other, other approaches. And one of them was called CRISPR activation. So CRISPR is this relatively new thing that we have discovered as a field that bacteria invented uh, millennia ago. And CRISPR is this way for one to target specific regions of DNA. And in bacteria, they use it to cut out new bits of DNA that viruses have introduced into the bacteria. And so it's, a, it's an immune response in a bacteria. For us, what we have used CRISPR to do is instead of making cuts, we've used it to target a little bit of DNA and basically use CRISPR as a chaperone. And what CRISPR is doing in our case is bringing along an extra transcriptional regulator to a bit of DNA that's upstream of SCN2A called its enhancer. And we're asking CRISPR to put this little transcriptional regulator on the enhancer and tell that enhancer to enhance. So <laughs> it's a case where you can regulate SCN2A by upstream, basically hitting the gas pedal a lot harder. And so in this case, we're targeting both the normal copy and the damaged copy. But since the normal copy is the only one making protein, we can tell that copy to express a lot more. And in this case, compensate for the loss of the damaged copy. And so this is something called CRISPR activation, where you don't actually make any cuts into the DNA. But it can be useful in a case like this, where you have haploinsufficiency and you have a gene that's simply too big for traditional gene therapy. And so our poster at SFN was asking the question of, well, can we get this to work in cells? Can we get this to work in a mouse? And if we get it to work on the level of an individual cell, can we actually restore some of these learning deficits that we identified in the mouse models that had lost SCN2A? So now that we have all of that background, now that, we, now that we have this technique where theoretically we could upregulate SCN2A, we just had to ask whether or not we could do it. And it looks like uh, with this work with Nadav's lab, we were able to get some, some pretty healthy upregulation in what are called neuro-2A cells, which are these neuron-like uh, immortalized cell lines. And it looked like it was working there. So we, we actually ended up packaging it into viruses and injecting it into some little mouse models that are heterozygous or haploinsufficient for SCN2A. And what we found again was actually the... Cases of excitability and backpropagation were restored, but more importantly, we, we saw a case where we were actually able to rescue some of the synaptic defects. And so it looked like at the level of individual cells, we're, we're starting to get back to that normal level of learning. 
And so this was really exciting to us uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it looks like it actually can work if we tried it all. But two, it actually ended up working even if we did injections relatively late in life. So in this case, we started with mice that were about four weeks old. That's equivalent to about a 12-year-old's child. And we saw that we were actually able to rescue some aspects of excitability and synaptic plasticity, even at that age. And so it's a situation where my hope is that if we could translate this into something that could work in a child, that could be delivered in a a clinical setting, that we might be able to administer it relatively late in life and see some benefits. It's not going to be a perfect cure. I, don't, I, I think it's going to be relatively hard to get a perfect cure with SCN2A, but I think it might be a case where we see some, some benefits, some restoration of, of normal function. Yeah, and thanks. And your explanation of the process you had to go through with CRISPR activation rather than just a gene editing and substitution just highlights that if as a community we're expecting someone's just going to come up with this, just put in, the, put in a good gene, take out the bad gene, problem solved forever. It doesn't look like, yeah, like it's going yeah. to be that simple. It's it's a complicated process. And actually, it's, it's complicated by the different type of mutations that are in SCN2A and the different manifestations, whether it be gain of function or loss of function. So actually, I'm really excited about the different approaches that are being pushed forward within the field for a lot of different approaches. So what we're working on is a case where it would work, it could work for loss of function that's associated with a protein truncation. Unfortunately, there's other cases where there's loss of function where there's a missense variant. Unfortunately, the way we're approaching this would not work in its current manifestation, but maybe if we push it forward, we could design something that works with and selectively targets one allele over the other or one copy of the gene over the other copy and actually upregulate that way. It could actually work on the flip side. You could you could have a case where you could have downregulation. It's just called CRISPR inactivation or CRISPR inhibition instead of CRISPR activation. And so you can do the flip side with this. But again, unless we can target individual copies, you're going to run into some troubles. But it's one of those things where we're at the point where people are making dramatic strides in basic research to understand how to control these genetic elements. And this is a case where there's there's obvious need. And so we're just pushing forward as much as we can. And the field is pushing forward in many ways in terms of delivery of these compounds, in terms of more precise editing or more precise targeting of individual DNA elements, where I'm pretty darn hopeful. And honestly, there's there's a bunch of other approaches that one could take. On the gain-of-function side, you could have small molecules or antisense oligos that are showing some real definite progress uh, and promise um, in the future. And then there are other people that are, that are taking an ASO approach on the loss-of-function side. And so hopefully all of these will move forward and... Um, and we'll see some some progress very soon. So thanks for outlining where you're at now. Where's your lab going and what are you working on looking forward? So we're very excited about CRISPR-A and we're going to keep pushing on that. But there's also some, some other major questions that we have with SCN2A. 
everything we've done so far in mouse models has been to understand what's going on in neocortex. But honestly, and even though that's an outrageously important part of your brain, it's just one part of your brain. And there are many other parts. And SCN2A is expressed throughout your body or throughout your brain. And uh, it's important to know what its function is in these other cells. So we're starting to do some work in cerebellum. We'd like to do some work in brainstem because... Obviously, one of the hardest things with children with SCN2A disorders are the sleep issues, the gastrointestinal issues, uh, just everyday day of life working to help these children. It's, it's tricky. And if we can get situations where we can understand what SCN2A does outside of the neocortex and actually in more sort of basic autonomic function, we think that might help the help the families as well. And so that's going to be a major push for us. And then we have various lines in the lab, various mouse lines in the lab, where we can ask the question of, well, what is the therapeutic window for intervention? When, can, when do we need to see restoration of SCN2A to restore certain aspects of behavior or learning at an individual cell level? And so those are the major questions that we're going to be pushing forward on. Thanks, Kevin. Um, we really appreciate uh, your generosity in sharing your work and um, obviously giving up your time today. And we look forward to hearing where your work goes and, and the impact on that for all our families with SCN2A. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking with both of you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. So what did you find interesting? For me, the the biggest drive home that Kevin talked about was that their recent work and their ongoing work is that they're looking at not only changes in young mice, but they're also seeing it in older mice, like he talked about, four-week-old mice, which was equivalent of 12 years, and they're seeing some reversibility in how SCN2 presents and, and its impact. So that's really exciting uh, for, for those of us with older children, and it provides us some hope that there may be some, some help for our older kids out there. What about you, Dave? What did you find interesting? Brings out a bit the geek in me. I found really interesting some of the basic science and how Kevin's lab's really over a number of years been using that ability to look at what's happening at a cellular level and a mouse model to better understand what the SCN2A gene does and the various mutations then translate to in terms of abnormal function. And then particularly interesting, the work uh, they're now doing with the CRISPR activation to give more insights into the role of that back propagation and when you modulate that, what does that do to learning and behaviour? So I think will not only hopefully lead to treatments that may be relevant across the lifespan of people with SCN2A, uh, but also a better understanding of what the NAV 1.2 channel does and what SCN2A mutations do, which in turn will guide development of other treatments and other targets. Yeah, and it was also interesting he talked about that their work in understanding how what happens at the cell level has to do with autism and that that learning can be translated across autism in general. And, and that's a really exciting work being done and uh, an exploding field where this information will be helpful to many. Keep up to date with the latest on genetic epilepsy and developmental epileptic encephalopathies by following this podcast. We'll get regular updates on SEN2A through SEN2 Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SEN2A Australia. And thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 